0: um yeah i wouldn't say i'm a big podcast person like a couple of years ago i i used to listen to pretty frequently um partially examined life and yeah. then uh richard wolf's thing and you know for this episode so i decided to go listen to a couple of rev lefts episodes and <laughs> i listened to one and i listened to another one and then like the past two days i probably i think i've listened to like five or six now um <laughs> I saw your one with the with the guy from the Partially Examined Life, I yeah. saw, I, yeah, that was, I, well, I don't know, we, we can definitely get into s-
1: specifics, but yeah, it's just a lot of really, really good stuff. Awesome, um, that's really awesome to hear. Uh, I've been a long-time fan of Partially Examined Life myself, it's one of the, probably the first podcasts I started listening to years ago, so it was a real honor to, to have uh, Wes on. Are y'all recording already? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, we're, we're recording. Cool, good, good. We just started like um, a minute ago. <clears throat>
2: Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so, Mila, you've got specific questions for him. I basically, yeah, it's just like last, last time when we were trying to record this last week, like, um, more or less the same set of topics and or questions okay. uh, about, like, I mean, particularly what I'm interested in getting to is, uh, like, that discussion on ideological diversity that uh you're seeing play out in places like you know new york times and uh, the atlantic and how that sort of is illustrative of why we have to have independent left-wing media you know mm-hmm. uh, but we'll get to that when we get to that i know you gotta go at uh at one o'clock your time
1: yeah well, yeah one ish i mean 45 minutes to, to an hour should be fine
2: okay uh go ahead and get started um Welcome to the third episode of Song Dogs podcast. Uh, I'm JB. I've got my co host Mealy with me. Say hi, Mealy. Hi. And we are currently talking to the host of one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Revolutionary Left Radio, talking to Brett O'Shea. What's
1: up, man? Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. And uh, thanks for the kind words about the show. It's always sort of surprising that, you know, I have comrades all over the country that that actually like the show so much. It's kind of taken us by surprise, but it's really humbling and it's, it's really amazing to, to hear that stuff. So thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, no, we're excited to have you. Uh, we're going to have a, a discussion today, a little bit about, about Rev left radio itself, but mostly about, um, independent left wing media and the importance of it and the importance of its, of its nature as, as its independent nature. Uh, but I'll start with, uh, a really easy question, I guess. Uh, How did Rev Left Radio get started?
1: All right, well, yeah, Rev Left Radio, which is fundamentally me and my sound guy, David, we started organizing... Um, Just like community organizing in the wake of the the Trump election. So it was Hillary and Trump, and we we were sort of getting into contact with other leftists here in Omaha, um, sort of preparing for what we assumed would be a a Clinton presidency. And we still wanted to maintain a leftist resistance to that sort of neoliberal centrism. But after Trump got elected, we were all kind of taken aback, and it really sort of put us us in hyper gear as, as far as organizing went and in the early meetings of our of our organizing effort we were trying to think of projects we could do in the community you know sort of angles we could take to to address some of the issues in our in our community and one of the big things that kept reappearing was this concept of, of how do we educate people? You know, how do we reach out to people and, and move liberals leftward or, or help leftists develop? And, you know, the idea of a podcast came came up in those meetings. And my friend David is, is a longtime musician, so we had some of the hardware in his, in his basement to record music. And so it was easy to sort of transform that into just recording software for a podcast. So we just kind of stumbled into it. I mean, at first we really did not We did not think that this was going to to take off as it did. I I ran some bigger pages on Facebook, so when we did our first couple episodes, we would post them on those bigger pages. You know, you have maybe like ten, twenty thousand 20,000 people following a Facebook page. You don't know how much it's going to take off, but it we already sort of had the built-in mechanism to get the word out about the show and so it from there it just kind of it kind of grew pretty quickly and then once we were able to capture one or two big guests early on we could then leverage that to get even bigger guests and that would bring more people in so it just kind of snowball effect but yeah the, the the core of Rev Left Radio came out of actual organizing here in Omaha and in our, our sort of organization that we have here in the Nebraska Left Coalition yeah I was
0: just going to say um to that point about just trying to help other people sort their thoughts out and inform their thoughts about um, about socialism or just about politics more generally. It's one of the things I really appreciated. I guess from my perspective, I would call it restraint, but you had um, episodes about uh, China, whether or not China is socialist, and, or conversations with uh, a liberal. I can't remember what their background was, but with a liberal. And you, I just liked that you were basically very respectful of, of, of hearing what their thoughts were and what exactly they think their contribution to the discussion is and making sure you understood their points on their own terms. Yeah. Um, like
1: um, from my perspective, that takes restraint. But For sure, yeah. Well, first of all, like, I, I know that the debate forum, the sort of confrontational style of debate is, is sort of unhelpful when it comes to – if, if your goal is to educate people on various positions. So after – especially after the Is China Socialist episode, I got a lot of pushback from sort of anarchist segments of the left that felt that, you know, I was not – You know, debatey enough. I was not confronting this person enough on some aspects of what they thought and that by by not being so forceful with them that I was actually sort of endorsing that view or whatever. And I thought that was sort of an, an unfair approach to what I was trying to do because I do want to keep dialogue open and I want people to actually learn about other positions. So if you're an anarchist, I want you to learn about Marxism, about Leninism, about Maoism. And if you're a Leninist, I want you to learn about Marxism. And for both, I want you to learn about what the liberal position is because the goal is always to educate. Um, So that's just sort of the the approach I've always taken. Some people don't like it, but I I find the vast majority of listeners do appreciate it because they feel that it allows them space to not be on the defensive, like a debate would kind of force you into a defensive posture. But these more Mm -hmm. open dialogues can actually can be inviting in a way that actually really does help you learn and, and educate you on positions that you might not hold, but at least when you, when you put that, that, you know, the show away, you've learned something and now you understand this position better, even if you don't ultimately agree with it.
2: I'm not a big fan of broadcasting debates. Like having debates is one thing, particularly if you know the people, but like, I don't, I don't really see a whole lot of utility in broadcasting debates because I mean, well, I guess, you know, it's for the audience more so than anything else. But I thought that the 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 dialogue with the liberal episode it was really interesting because you know you at least with me I I evolved out of sort of being a, a nebulous progressive liberal for a long time, and in in the sort of course of that that personal evolution you just forget some things, you know what I mean? Right. As, as you sort of set them aside, and it was interesting to hear. Someone who is uh, clearly very educated and, and very well read and sort of knows what they're talking about still sort of spin their wheels, I feel like, and not to be mean to the guy, but like sort of spin their wheels on some of the questions of, of like particularly like materialist stuff versus idealist stuff. I, I, I felt like in some of those instances he was really spinning his wheels. And I thought I could hear you sort of restraining yourself <laughs> yourself a couple times, yeah, yeah. and but I thought having the format be kind of like a a back and forth, but not a debate,
1: yeah, uh,
2: sort of forced forced him not into a defensive position but into a position where he had to try to answer some questions that I just don't think liberalism answers very well right and so regardless of uh, how much he may genuinely have wanted to answer them, well, he, he didn't. I thought that was a really – it was a good conversation. And, and like the questions at the end were pretty good too. I felt like you got some good listener questions on that. Oh, yeah. Um, how sort of important do you think it is? Because when we had this conversation last time, we had a really good analogy when we tried to record it the first time. Uh, the, the question is how important do you think it is that, that left-wing media be not just independent, in the traditional sense, but also, like, I hate to use the term small, but we had this conversation, and and you related it to kind of, like, to music. Yeah. And I thought that was a good analogy. Would you go into that a little bit?
1: Sure, yeah. I think there's um, fundamentally an analogy between underground independent music and and left-wing media generally, precisely because the the content of of both of those sorts of forms of expression are – Um, antithetical to the sort of baseline background ideology in our society. So if you are going to do music that is hyper-conscious, that, you know, is is reflective of the social ills of our society, that really critiques them, um, you're going to have a smaller audience by definition because the vast majority of the population is passively conditioned into the sort of false dichotomy of conservative or liberal. And for many people, any analysis or any sort of breakdown of society that, that, that fundamentally goes beyond that limitation is going to going to result in, in, in a smaller audience, but it's also going to at least at first, but it's also going to result in bigger platforms not being able to sort of give you give you that platform. Um, you know, the more conscious you are in music, the less likely you are to sell out, you know, football stadiums. And the more anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist you are in your media narrative, the less likely there's going to be platforms out there that are going to give you that space to to spew that sort of, you know, outside-the-box thinking. Now, I hope that changes over time. Um, but that's gonna that's gonna come only when there's a, a fundamental change in the the broader society. And you know, if we start small, and capitalism continues to do what it does, um, I think more and more people are going to be looking for alternatives. And so it, we might be small right now, and maybe we'll never be as big as some of the liberal or conservative outlets. But I think there's I actually think there might be more room to grow as leftist media than there than there is with with more hardline or underground music but then perhaps both will grow together as sort of the music as the cultural side and the leftist media as the sort of theory and analysis side of things gets larger as as the system continues to fail to produce higher qualities of life for people and more people turn to you know alternatives i do think when it comes to leftist media culture plays a big part um we we can sit here and analyze society but I, attacking on all fronts means leftist or radical music. It means radical art. It means radical literature. We should build up an entire culture um, of resistance to, to to the status quo, and hopefully, maybe in that process, we can all work across different mediums and, and uplift each other. But yeah, I do think there's fundamentally that analogy between you know underground independent music and what we're trying to do with leftist media right now.
2: I always think about some of the the publications that came out of different movements in history uh, very recently you know uh or more recently i suppose uh you had jacobin came out of of occupy but going back further than that you had uh publications like uh, Dissent and in these times came out in the 60s and i feel like all of them and and you you can sort of or i have sort of observed it happen in real time with uh with jacobin where like as they gain sort of an authoritative voice which really is just a way of saying, as they gain a certain degree of popularity, mm-hmm. they begin to be referenced a bit, a bit, in uh, in more mainstream, uh, like major media places and stuff like that. There is this phenomenon where, even if they're independent, which is why I I felt like I needed to qualify independent, they get to a certain size and that it's kind of like I don't know how it happens because I've never worked at one of these publications. It's like they get to a certain size and, and they have a choice to make, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And in order to to be acceptable in in certain circles of conversation, they have to tone it back a bit. And I know me and me and Mealy have griped about what's happened to to Jacobin in like the last year or two a lot. And they still do good things, you know, but um, but just as time has progressed, they're becoming more and more like those older social democratic publications right. that they were originally founded to, to replace. Yeah. And it, it's difficult, you know what I mean? It's, I'm sure at some point there's a choice one has to make and, and you know the choice that we have to make in order to stay on the right side of things is to continue to be radical and to continue to be revolutionary and focused
1: yeah yeah i would i would say that p- part of the problem there is that a- as you get bigger um, as you have more of a platform there's sort of a an incentive momentum you know you're paying staff you sort of have to continue to keep that pay up you want to hire new writers, you want to get more exposure in different f- outlets and that sort of implicit incentive system is going to act as a a restraint on your radicalism. Now I'm not sure Jacobin ever sat out to be completely radical. I think there is sort of a democratic socialist social democratic line they walk but certainly, Um, the larger you get that incentive structure is going to come into play. And then you have a you have a sort of option. Do we do we address this from a more mainstream social democratic viewpoint for the Bernie Sanders types voters? Or do we get a little more critical and radical and move a little leftward? Well, the incentive system is always going to be skewed towards the former. And and it's going to it's going to even like, as you say, even if it's unconscious, even if you're not totally thinking about it, you know, that process will sort of unveil itself uh, through time but having said that, you know, there's plenty of stuff to critique about about Jacobin certainly. And sometimes their articles are only as good as the authors they get to write that that specific piece. But I do view broadly social democratic or democratic socialist um, sort of social formations like the DSA or like Jacobin as although for me they're, they're well to the right of me. Um, I, I view them as an important sort of bridge for liberals. I think it's much easier for a liberal who is moving leftward to crack open Jacobin and to, to go to a DSA meeting than it might be for them to do more of the you know black block protest or to get into some of the more hardline critical Marxist or anarchist analysis. And so while, while there is a lot to critique there, I'm still glad Jacobin exists. I'm I'm still glad the DSA exists because they do serve as a as a bridge in my opinion to move people leftward. And I I, I know just from from Rev Left and the guillotine and just my interactions with people online that and even my own political development. I went through a DSA Jacobin stage, you know, and it was important in my in my progress away from my socially conditioned liberalism to have that outlet there. And a lot of people that listen to us also sort of have – have had that experience as well. Um, what, this last election with Bernie Sanders and the corruption in the Democratic Party and then this this system vomiting up two horrible candidates that almost everybody hated, a lot of people became disillusioned. And and when you first get disillusioned, it might be easier to turn to a Jacobin in the DSA as, as an initial step leftward than, than more radical approaches. So lots, lots to critique there. Um, I do think the incentive structure works against its radicalism. But hopefully it sort of at least maintains a democratic socialist outlook because I think that uh, we have to have all, you know, attack on all fronts on the left and and that is part of the left.
2: Camila, you got anything?
1: Yeah, it's just because you
0: guys basically just like went went through two interrelated points and I'm just trying to figure out which one I want to touch on. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, yeah, they're, they're good points. Um, one thing, it's this one theme, I think, and especially for people on the left, that if you read a lot of uh, criticisms of liberalism, and if also you look at history, it seems like liberalism or maybe even maybe even status quo ideology more generally, it has an open right ear and like a completely plugged left ear, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So like, no matter how far to the right you are, people are always willing to hear someone out to the right of them. But people to the left of them are always commies or are are just socialists or just Marxists or just whatever. And I, I, I've talked about this a lot with my parents and one of the things that I think I've done in talking to them is I've made them open to hearing, um, criticism from the left because it, I don't know, there's just this sort of like gut rejection of it. And that's what's really important about having like spaces, independent leftist media, or just spaces where you can talk about uh, things on a sort of, left ideological terrain um because people need to be exposed to these ideas because there's a lot of progressives who are becoming dissatisfied with uh the status quo or becoming dissatisfied with democrats and they they know they are not republicans and i mean this is also true just around the world where people know they do not want to move further to the right of where they are but they're not satisfied with where they're at and they've been told their whole lives that everything to the left of them is like you know marxists who are going to eat their babies or whatever else (laughs)
2: Um, (laughs) yeah Yeah. no that that reminds me of like uh my because i spent some years y'all some years as like the most well-meaning uh and furthest to the left liberal that i think i knew but part of it was i feel like i didn't even know that anything further to the left really existed you know what i mean i didn't register i didn't register anarchism as serious which is of course a mistake and i didn't register communism as even being left wing it was just so outside of my understanding and i think that's part of it too is like you think know, we don't really get popular culture anyway doesn't really get a, uh, a a sense of of what exists outside of the mode of liberal logic right. you know
1: yeah and i, I was going to add to that you know, if you look at the, the Democratic Party or what mainstream liberalism is in, in the United States, it's, it's not dead in the center. I mean, the center is a relative term, but sort of if you zoom out and kind of look at the entire spectrum, I mean, the Democratic Party and mainstream liberalism is to the right of center. They, they are a center-right social formation. And then the Republicans yeah. and conservatives are more of a far-right social formation. So when, when people that are conditioned into that slot start to look for things that they can move away towards, alternatives... The far right is is going to be just closer, you know, by definition to them than the far left is because the whole political spectrum is skewed towards the right. And so that lends itself to that sort of thing. And then I would also say the, the way that communism and anarchism especially are painted in our popular culture – if you, if you think about anarchy, if you ask somebody on the street about the philosophy of anarchism, they're going to just tie it in with, with chaos. Anarchy is like the purge, you know. The, even the purge <laughs> movie, yeah, they, they labeled it anarchy. They had that in the title. And that sort of conditions people into that view of anarchy. And then when you think about communism, what do they think about? Well, it comes straight out of Cold War propaganda. You think of 1984. You think of drab, gray clothing, and people waiting in bread lines, because that's been conditioned into people. So, just from the very get go just on the basic sense of what terms are people are going to have a conditioned repulsion to to communism and anarchism in a way that they just don't to the far right because racism and white supremacy is embedded in our culture it's always been that way I mean slavery Jim Crow I mean you know concentration camps for Japanese Americans during World War II, etc. This whole society has skewed so far to the right that Nazis seem seem more practical to the average person on the street almost than, than really hardline anarchists or communists because this, the whole social system is already to the right. It's already closer to that than it is to us. And that's a real problem. I'm hoping that that things are moving leftward. That that leftist media and and leftist cultural blossomings are sort of moving that Overton window a little bit to the left. I mean, Bernie Sanders couldn't even have ran ten years ago. It would have been, it would have been absurd. So the fact that that he could even run and say that yes, I am a socialist, whether or not you agree with the fact, whether or not he is a socialist, the fact is he could say it. That in and of itself is indicative of some space is being opened up on the left. And then it's our job at that point to, to take advantage of it and to sort of aggravate that and move it even further to the left.
0: Well, that's, um, you basically, you you tied right back into the other thing, the other path I wanted to walk down. So that's, that's a perfect comment. Um, the, the one thing I was thinking about in the context of your conversation about liberalism, your one episode, um, and this is another reason why I think it's really important to have, uh, left media is because, the, again, it's different ideological terrain. So as uh, JB pointed out, the, when you were talking to the person on your show, like that person, you didn't really put him in a defensive, but it was clear that there was, um, he wasn't just going to be able to do this thing that liberals do when they're in liberal spaces where they just speak in platitudes mm-hmm. and those platitudes aren't going to be examined or, or challenged or anything like that. And as you point out. Um, you're pointing out specifically about the U.S., but I think this could be said about liberalism more generally. I mean, it's, it's really impossible, it seems to me, to separate liberalism from white supremacy, um, from cishet normative patriarchy, um, from colonialism, um, and obviously from capitalism. And the way liberals want to talk about it is they want it to be um, ripped away from this historical context and this social context and this political context. It wants to be ripped away from it. So that they can say nice sounding things about human dignity and the respect for the individual and human rights and blah, 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 blah. Like they just want to be able to rattle off platitudes and people don't challenge them. And they say, "Ah, okay. well, I really like all the freedom and democracy that's been brought to. And then they say, like, you know, Western Europe and and North America and uh, Southeast Asia or something. And, you know, to anyone who's ever studied, like, I don't know, settler colonialism or studied Uh, the history of white supremacy or study just colonialism more generally or imperialism or or patriarchy or whatever they're listening to this and they're kind of like i mean really like do you really think this right do we just have to let this go unchallenged and if you do let this go unchallenged you basically you concede the whole the whole conversation because they're having it on their terms where they ignore all these things
2: well it's sort of the myth of like of progress right which is why we're we're radicals because like one of the the fallacies that i think liberalism operates on and we we need to get to the to back to to left-wing media in a minute but i think one of the fallacies that they operate with is the idea that it, that it evolves i mean it does evolve but if if the roots remain the same then certain um Certain mechanics, certain operations will always be driving that evolution. And, of course, the roots of, of liberalism are directly tied into the development of, of white supremacy as it exists, you know, in today and directly tied into the modern manifestation of patriarchy. And, uh, of course, absolutely 100 uh, percent liberalism is the philosophical sort of center of capitalism. Right. And. If you if you cannot address those fundamental building blocks of society, then the then the notion that they can be sort of evolved away entirely is just absolute idealist fallacy. All
1: right. Yeah. Can I? Take, oh, go, oh, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to touch on something really quick. You sure. said you said that liberalism is the philosophy and the ideology of capital, and that's absolutely mm-hmm. something that we should remember because liberalism evolves in you know in a codependent way with with capital and so it liberalism always marks itself out as the the maintainer of the status quo and insofar as liberals are forced to go leftward, it's never because liberal politicians themselves come to these ideas. It's always because you have radical working class people in social movements that force them leftward. And we've seen that all throughout history. Um, even when you look back at FDR and the New Deal, it wasn't that liberals were just like, hey, you know, we should do something nice for the working class. It was a couple of factors, but some of the biggest factors were we were in the midst of the, the Great Depression, an absolute capitalist crisis, and you had the USSR posing a real structural threat and a real alternative at that time to capitalism. And so liberals because of this, we had social movements here in the US. You have this big socialist state, you know, across the world that poses a threat, and liberals and the 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 establishment itself were really scared of a Soviet Bolshevik style worker uprising here in the U.S. And so that led to those concessions that liberals nowadays love to praise as, look, at that's liberal progress. Moving forward, you look at the civil rights era. You know, where were most liberal Democrat politicians on the race issue um, dur- during that time. Well, they were they were regressive. They were to the right. Even Martin Luther King had his, you know, famous letter from a Birmingham jail where he criticized white liberals' complacency and their sort of elevation of their own comfort over real progress. So liberalism has never been the engine of progress. It's always been forced to forced into a progressive um, posture by radical movements on the ground. And of course when we look back, because we have liberal histories, the, the liberal history wants to assert these great politicians like, you know, Kennedy or something. That was the reason that that things moved so well. And they want to whitewash this, this radical element that pushed liberals. And so even today, we're going through that same thing where the Democrats would much rather reach out to to the professional upper middle class to the suburbs to try to get those Republicans that are just disgusted by Trump onto their side than they would to look left and try to get this huge segment of the population of young people, of working people, of poor people. You know, that's almost like their instinct is rightward. And only through so much pressure from regular people do they even consider moving leftward. And so I think that's something that people should really, really, really keep in mind.
2: Yeah, for sure. Speaking of a little bit of... Well, it doesn't have to be historical. Uh, Mine are mostly historical with only a couple of exceptions. But who are some of your favorite or inspirational uh, left-wing writers, specifically, like not theorists per se, but like media figures or we even stretch it to the term journalists? Uh, I know you're a big fan of Abby Martin. The episode you had with her was really, really good. Uh, So am I, as a matter of fact. But uh, what are what are some of your some of the people who are in, really influential in your development with their their left wing analysis of current events?
1: Well, yeah, I do like Abby Martin. I like Rainey Acolic. Um These are people that are on the left end of of the journalist spectrum, but they still get pretty good platforms on some left-leaning outlets that allow them to get their voice out. Um, You know, just developing a lot of the commentary. I think we talked about it in our previous conversations, but, you know, Chris Hedges, as I was developing, you know, Chris Hedges played an interesting role. Um, Noam Chomsky, obviously, I think, um, I know you mentioned that last time, but I think people like that really help. Um, reframe issues that we take for granted and push us forward. But a lot of like today I do, I do, I will go through articles. I I will go through like, you know, when I'm doing segments for the guillotine, I'm doing research. I go through a broad swath of, of, you know, liberal to more left-wing outlets and kind of compile it and form my own analysis. But mostly I, I do think that theory is important because it informs your ability to not only understand um, journalistic analysis, but to, but to create your own. So theory is the basis. If you, have, if you have a good theory, then you can approach media, you can approach current events in, in a more sort of coherent way. And then you make sense of, of current events through theory. So I, I don't think you can separate the two. So I don't really have single journalists that I ever have, or even to this day, really depend on or, or go to over and over again for that sort of analysis, I have my theory and then I approach a wide swath of, of journalistic outlets and and sort of, you know, see how they cohere with with, with how I think about things and how my theory informs my, my perspective on current events.
2: Oh yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to disparage theory like me and me and Mealy, and I know you are too, are both like philosophy nerds.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> it's just sometimes, you know, and this is I think this is not an invalid uh, complaint. Sometimes you get the complaint though that like uh, leftists can be so theory heavy that it's a bit alienating to to a lot of people. I I don't know. I think sometimes that's um, when when that criti- when that criticism is coming from another leftist. I think that's a bit of like you know anxiety about how we perceive ourselves or whatever. But when it's coming from outside the left, I don't give a shit. Like right. you know, right. a lot of people think that. If you work like a regular job that you are at least half illiterate and that's just bullshit like working people can understand like the complexities of theory just fine
0: absolutely
2: mealy you you got anything
0: yeah i was just um this kind of reminded me of like how i ended up becoming a marxist um and it's like i i wish it kind of speaks to a need for i'll tell the story but it kind of speaks to a need for these sort of spaces where you can have these um, discussions from a socialist perspective, which is just that I was reading um, Lenin. I just felt like giving socialism a chance because I was fed up with with liberalism, and I was reading um, imperialism, and I remembered thinking at several points while reading it that he, describing like World War One and the lead up to World War One, he was giving me a better description of my experience uh, growing up during the Iraq War than. Any of the journalists or analyses I'd heard from liberals. Mm. And I remember thinking, OK, so this guy, this Lenin guy is a Marxist. <clears throat> he's applying an, a Marxist analysis to this stuff from 100 years ago. And he's having a better take on phenomenon he never saw than the people who are there every day looking at it and telling me what to think about it. So, yeah, and I, I just think at the time, if I had like if there had been any good outlets or something like, you know, like these type of podcasts or something to listen to, I might have might have had an easier transition to becoming a Marxist. But it's just there there's a need for it. Like people can feel that there's something wrong. Um, I remember listening, I guess, to a Jimmy, an episode of Jimmy Dore or something where he just made this point that like. Like his show, he's just he's a comedian. He just talks just like, you know, mocks liberals, basically, and talks about politics from a slightly further to the left perspective. Right. Um, and I guess the same thing with like podcasts like Chapo Trap House or something. I've never listened to an episode, but I guess those guys are comedians or whatever, primarily. And it just kind of shows the poverty of of the liberal analysis when there's. Uh, basically, people just looking for comedians who are at the very least just mocking that perspective and maybe not even necessarily giving much more of an analysis than that.
1: You're exactly right. When, when, you, when you're looking, when you're a liberal and you're sort of fed up with the with the bland and sort of non-deep um, analysis that liberalism often has to offer and you're looking for other alternatives, I had a hard time too. And, and my, my political development would have been much faster had I had resources Like we see this blossoming of left-wing media now, but that's that's almost like within the last year or two have we seen this? Before that, there was almost nothing. And one of the driving forces, when I was, because I've been a longtime podcast fan. I mean, I would listen to it at work. I mean, since like 2010, 2011. Um, So I've always been into podcasts, but I, I I realized that. I would search like left wing or Marxist or anarchist podcast and come up with nothing over and over again. And so when I was going to make Rev Left Radio, I I was sort of fed up with as a podcast fan with the options I had of podcasts. And I was like, I want to make a show that I want to listen to. I can't find this sort of show. So I'm going to just take it upon myself to go out and try my hardest to make the sort of show that I would want to hear that I'm desperately looking for. And, you know, recently we've seen a lot of your show, my show, a bunch of other people coming up with shows shows, that's a beautiful thing. And I get messages from younger comrades who, you know, are in their teens and they're listening to Rev Left and they're listening to the guillotine and they're becoming super radical in a way that, you know, when I'm almost 30, so I never had those resources when I was in my teens, you know, and to see, to see that we're actually lending younger comrades that those resources that we did not have. That to me is is really beautiful, and it, it's sort of a a mark of progress like we are making a difference. It might be small right now and and it, we might have a long way to go, but just just from just from my pro- progress to younger people coming up, there's so many more resources now, and i think I think that's a really beautiful thing and then the last thing i'd say is j b touched on this concept of working people are not dumb and and I totally totally agree with that now, if you want to go talk to a fellow worker and you want to start talking about historical materialism or referencing old books, maybe that will be a turnoff to them, but you can quite easily put the basic suffering that working and poor people go through into terms that any working class person can understand and I've worked in kitchens, I've worked you know, in, in office spaces, I've worked in blue collar manual labor jobs, and in all of those jobs all of those different contexts, I was able to reach out to my fellow workers and explain things in, in a way that, that, that sort of expands their social consciousness and their class consciousness. And yeah, I, did, I couldn't necessarily make them Marxist or anarchist overnight, but at the same point, I, I could help sort of just reframe their experiences because they already have the experiences. You know, they already know what it's like to be, to, to hate, to dread going into work, to pulling up to work and sitting in your car and just like putting your hand in your heads and like, how am I going to do another eight hours? Like, my God, when will this ever end? People know that viscerally. And so if you just go to them and you start framing their, their, their sort of, angst or their their sadness or their sort of just melancholy that that produces from the routine you start putting that into terms they can understand like why does our boss have so much like why is why are we like oh we have to wear this or you know management comes down with some new rule that we have no say in and in fact we think it's 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 illogical because we actually work on the ground and we know what works and what doesn't but we have these these dictates from on high that we have to abide by i mean people understand that so yeah i, I totally i totally just, i i get repulsed at this notion that that we we can't talk to working people with a really heavy theoretical or radical outlook because Working people are way more receptive to it than a lot of people think.
2: I never – I will never forget for my whole life uh, one of the coolest anecdotes I've ever seen. You're familiar with David Harvey? Absolutely. Uh, you know, he's taught capital uh, for like 30 fucking years. And uh, he's always taught it as a graduate-level you know, survey course and simultaneously taught it in uh, prisons. Mm. And he has said many, many times he would be in these, you know, graduate courses with mostly graduate students, some faculty, you know, really diving into capital. And, and it would move slower and it would be more difficult to get everybody to sort of understand where they were in the graduate school setting than it was for him to get the people in the prison.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: Like it was much easier with the 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 relationship that uh, they had being, that the prisoners had, being yeah. on sort of like right beneath the blade itself of capitalism, made the understanding of, of what Marx is saying in Capital uh, just far more intuitive. Absolutely. And, you know, because I, I mean, like graduate students more often than, than not uh, tend to come from uh, more middle class or upper middle class or just upper class backgrounds. I mean, I say that I'm not from that background, and I'm about to be a graduate student. But you know, there are exceptions. But you know, when you get into into that sort of thing, you're you're usually interacting with people who come from a little bit more of a comfortable background versus when you're interacting with the the folks that tend to get thrown into the prison industrial complex, uh, which tend to be poor racialized people and um i'll never forget that anecdote like it was easier for these people who most of liberal society would rather forget exists to understand capital than it is for i think david harvey teaches at columbia too so this wasn't like you know this is a very well respected school and uh he makes this observation and i love that anecdote
1: yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely. To- totally makes sense. And and it speaks exactly to what I was saying about working people. You know, these, these people understand their own oppression. Sometimes they just need it to be put into words for them, you know.
0: Well, it's like um, just the one, uh, like, function of sort of liberal media hegemony is that liberalism sort of carves society into distinct spheres. So you have, like, the economic sphere and then the political sphere and the social sphere and the foreign policy sphere and the domestic policy sphere. And so when people are, you know— watching getting their news about the world through primarily liberal media outlets they're basically the outlet will present things and it'll be like okay so you know yesterday the u.s like bombed the middle east and then in a completely unrelated thing tax rates for for the wealthiest people are just getting cut in half and then in another completely unrelated thing we have this problem with state violence against people of color and it it's this whole thing of that like what is dialectics it's it's giving an exposition basically. It's showing the interrelations of some sort of totality, in this case, society. So like to the point about the difference between uh people in prison and graduate students is that on the one hand you have a group of people who have a lot of experience of this stuff, but maybe not as much experience in thinking about them as interrelated. And then on the other hand you have This group of people who doesn't really experience the oppressions of society, or not to the same extent, but they can see the interrelations, but who cares if you can see the interrelations if if these things aren't that real to you? Right. It's much easier to show people who experience all these multifaceted oppressions in society how all of these things are interlinked and how to effectively struggle against them than to someone who's like... Uh, society's pretty okay. I really am just here to learn about the dialectic,
1: right? You know? Exactly, and, and and taking that even a little further, your great point about the different spheres and how liberalism likes to atomize spheres so that you don't connect them together. Um, that even extends into the cultural sphere. I mean, so like even like when you think about the NFL and and Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling protest, the the biggest refrain that you heard from just regular like sort of football fans, you know, reaction like sort of intuitively reactionary people is like. Uh, you know, get politics out of football. I don't come to the game to to hear about politics. I just want to watch the game or in film. Like, well, why, why do we have to bring politics into film? You know, why do you have to make everything about politics? And that's sort of a an outgrowth of this atomization, this this liberal delusion that that you can actually separate these spheres of life, and that and that you know, economics is one thing and, and culture is another. And no, in reality, they're all connected. And some of the best you know, Marxist work on culture is, is concepts about ideology and about how, how film and sporting events reflect basic political ideologies that creep into people's heads, even if they're not aware of it. I mean, American sniper, that's straight up, you know, propaganda for the state, you know, the NFL, when you have, when you have fighter jets fly over during the Super Bowl and everybody stands up and gets teary eyed with this huge hundred yard American flag. How is that not political? Everything is inherently political and you might not like it, but it's the case, and I th- totally think that part of our job is precisely to connect those struggles and show how you can't exist outside of outside of the political sphere. Everything is political, and it affects every part of your life. Even if that makes you uncomfortable, it doesn't make it any less true.
2: I want to write an essay about how um, the King of the Hill episode, where uh, Hank Hill discovers charcoal and what it actually tastes like when you grill with a charcoal grill. (laughs) It tastes so much better than uh, propane and how that like completely destroyed his, his uh, (laughs) worldview. Yeah. His worldview because he's economically dependent upon selling propane and propane accessories.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Yeah. We're actually um, speaking of that tonight, we're recording an episode on Rev left about the book by Mark Fisher, Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative? Oh, shit, yeah. yeah. And that yeah. book really goes into how neoliberal ideology works and how it manifests in popular culture, etc. So I'm really excited. I've been reading that book all week, and so I'm excited to have this, this next conversation coming up because it touches on exactly what we're talking about right here.
2: I haven't read that book. It's really close to the top of my to-be-read pile, though. Amelie, have you read that one?
1: No, I haven't had the chance. Yeah. It's it's only 80 pages. I would, I would highly recommend it. I didn't read it either until I was going to do this show, but it's, I mean, it's, it's a hard hitter for sure.
2: I'm going to have to check it out. I've got ai can't do it. Like I can't start today though. Cause I got to take my GRE tomorrow and I'm shitting myself oh, over here. Good luck. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to, we've got a, well, a few more minutes. Um, Mealy, do you got anything before I, I do this final question?
0: Yeah. I just, I had one, one thought um, cause y'all brought up uh, Abby Martin and I was just, Um, like I'm a big fan of her work as well. Um, And that's actually the next episode of your podcast I actually wanted to check out. Nice. But it's one thing that she, she says often, because, you know, like whenever she like appears in interviews or something, she'd often get the question of like, oh, how'd you end up working for RT? Or then I guess tell us her. Um, And she just, she points out this, this narrow scope of what you can talk about in the U.S. And it's without like viable, like left alternative media sources or something like that in the U.S. That's, that's what you have to, you have to go find other, not necessarily left publications, but ones that at least politically have some interest in being critical of of the society you're in, right. um, yeah. which is it's pretty ridiculous. But And it, of course, it, then it allows people in the U.S. to point to her and say, ah, she's a propagandist because right. of RT. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I've seen that over, over and over, over again, too. I mean, and just talking about Abby Martin real quick. You know, her, her um, sort of show she does on YouTube, Empire Files, where she kind of takes it upon herself to do the on-the-ground investigative journal, journalistic work of going into, like, Venezuela or Palestine and, and doing reporting from the ground from a left-wing perspective. Recently, um, her, her Empire Files got taken down in 28 countries by YouTube because of complaints of her coverage of the Palestine-Israel conflict. And so, you oh. know, when push comes to shove... I mean, the 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 corporate structure will actually clamp down and and act as 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 a censor to ideas that you know because obviously it. it um that perturbs a certain, you know, political base here in the U.S. and abroad, and, and they unify and, and turn in complaints, and then YouTube capitulates to those complaints, etc. But yeah, I mean, that, that's straight-up censorship, you know, and it's supposed to be the country of the free and the free marketplace of ideas, but when you, when you get, when you, when you hit too close to home, you know, the jaws of capital will clamp down and, and shut you up.
2: They won't ban Nazis, though, goddammit. Oh, never. Come on, free speech, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, let's talk
2: about this this situation. It, do any of y'all remember his name? Uh, the guy who got hired at the Atlantic caused a big fuss. Uh, was it uh, Williamson? Is his last name for sure?
1: Yeah, I was I was following this story too.
2: I, I believe it's Kevin Williamson. That's right. That's but, right. But you know, this guy, uh, he first of all, like there was there was so much justification made. By people at the Atlantic, particularly the editor, talking about his talent as a writer and uh, their their desire to have a, an ideologically diverse writing team there at the Atlantic. This guy literally suggested that because he believes that, that abortion is murder, that women who have had abortions ought to be hanged. Yeah. So, so essentially – This guy's background, just a little bit, besides this awful shit, is that he has been a never-Trump Republican who wrote for the National Review for a long time. Now, you know, none of us here have much use for never-Trump Republicans because never-Trump Republicans are just as bad as he is. They just don't like the way he presents himself, I suppose. But it seems like all of these ghouls, these these never Trump types, liberal media is doing everything in their power to snap them up as some sort of like, you know, in some sort of search for for the quote unquote reasonable Republican to have on their writing team. And the editor there at The Atlantic made the point to say when he was trying to justify hiring this awful man. You know, he would love to have a writing team with uh, socialists and uh, anarcho pacifists and <laughs> and all this sorts of shit. But where the hell does he think they going to hire him from? Yeah, The Atlantic is, it's not a newspaper, but it is probably the premier, along with The New Yorker, like the premier monthly uh, publication in the U.S. And they hire, you know, from other very elite publications, pretty much exclusively to my knowledge. And I don't understand, like, first of all, I, I, it's, this is really sort of just a thought experiment, right? Because he's not serious. He would not hire a communist. He would not hire a genuine anarchist. Uh, He might hire, uh, you know, somebody who worked on Bernie Sanders campaign, maybe. But like this, this appeal to ideological diversity only ever actually applies in reality to people to the right of liberals. And we were, we touched on this earlier, how that that window is always open, or that ear is always open. They'll hear something to their right, even if it disgusts them morally. They will nonetheless hear it and say, "We must treat this seriously. This is if free speech is to mean anything, it's to mean protection for the speech that offends us." And blah blah blah. But never ever give a serious voice to the even the best of of left wing writers. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: And then, and there's no shortage of them. I mean, you're, you're mentioning like like uh, David Harvey earlier. Like, there's plenty of people that that can and will, you know, give a really sober, coherent left wing v- vision of the world. And th- and these publications just don't even think about it. Even if they say they will, they don't. And and like as you say, liberals liberals love the never Trumpers because what they do is. They don't actually have progressive politics, but they play into liberal respectability politics. And and they're and and that to liberals is so important, is a sort of surface glean uh, you know we, we can bomb people in Yemen. We we can we can spend trillions of dollars killing innocent civilians and children in Iraq. But as long as you get up in front of that podium and you and you talk politely You know, liberals will love you. Obama can drone strike a wedding and then come on and talk and liberals will, you know, their hearts will pump with with glee and admiration of this man. And when Trump bombs an an airstrip in Syria, you know, liberal pundits go on to their shows and and, and sort of wax romantic about how for the first time Trump is actually being presidential. Um, So it's this weird sort of obsession with surface uh, respectability politics and... This this really they they don't understand the left they they can't comprehend the left as much as they can comprehend the right which we've talked about a lot and so it just doesn't even occur to them to have a to have a really I don't even know if they know you know real leftists like they don't even probably know them in those in those East Coast media circles you have right wingers you have liberals you have centrists you have neoconservatives neoliberals um, but like are communists you know and anarchists running around in those circles absolutely not so it just falls completely out of their out of their purview, out of their social circles, out of what they even can conceptualize as being reasonable arguments. And, and that's, you know, that's a real problem. I was just thinking
0: um, also just on this, this topic of like respectability, how, yeah, like the political orientation of the media source, like, right. It's this whole thing about ideology and how you present facts that, you, that different interpretations of facts can radically change everything. So like a good example is um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have seen this, this, polling data at one point or another, where there was a comparison between uh, Democrats and Republicans under Obama and Trump about their attitudes towards bombing Syria. And Democrats, it was 37% or something under Obama, and it was 36% under Trump. So almost no change. And then with Republicans, it was something like 25% under Obama, and then it goes up to like 80-something percent (laughs) under Trump. And the way the sort of Like, you know, progressive liberal, the Democrat media basically portrays this as they're like, oh, you know, look how whatever something ableist, like, look how unintelligent these Republicans are because they're partisan and they're just swayed by whoever's in power. Okay, yeah, clearly there's some there's partisanship involved in in that phenomenon. But the thing that they don't point out is that, huh, there's a higher percentage Of Democrats who want to bomb Syria regardless of who's in power, than Republicans, and that is supposed to be your anti-war party. Yeah, and they don't talk about that, and it's just it—it's this whole thing where Democrats, um, and of course, like when you ask them, they'll basically say, like you know, something to the effect of, like, well, you know, they want to talk about human rights violations or stabilizing the region, and then we have to go into a long, complex like discussion of has that ever worked historically and, you know, obviously not, but, um, or is it morally justified at all?
1: Yeah. there's so, that, but, Oh yeah. Well, I was just going to kind of play on that. There's, there's that old uh, Noam Chomsky argument where he's like, you know, the, the, the system will allow really robust debate, but within a very narrow spectrum. So it gives the illusion of this robust marketplace of ideas when in reality, there's a very thin layer of, of debate that is even allowable on mainstream platforms. And when it comes to imperialism and when it comes to capitalism, those things are never up for debate. And because people are conditioned into this sort of partisan hackery, because they feel like if I'm, a, if I'm on Team Democrat, then then I have to fight for Team Democrat and they're always right. And so when they do imperialistic ventures or when they bail out the banks, it's good because that's my team and and that's that's a real problem and it's it's this sort of bipartisan consensus when it comes to the really fundamental ills of our society and the the debate between liberals and conservatives happens on this really shallow surface level of you know sort of smaller contingent issues but never ever does it drill down into the deeper issues which sort of underlie all these other issues and and that's that sort of keeps the engine moving forward
2: I and mean, one time mealy when we were talking uh, this has been a while now, but uh, you you made an observation that I think is 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 like still it was really salient and is is relevant here. When you get the phenomenon of of talking to uh, two liberals, or you see you know the odd sort of interaction between a liberal media figure and a and a genuine leftist, which you do see now because of you know uh, social media and stuff like that, quite a bit more. Where you know the liberal figure reacts to a left- wing critique as though they are being like very personally attacked. and And you brought up that it's sort of when when a, a liberal is critiqued from their left, it sort of takes away this this idea they have of themselves as being morally superior in a political sense. Mm. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. i don't I don't think it has much. it's entirely, responsible for, you know, the marginalization of left-wing voices in liberal media or anything like that, but I do think it, it's, a, it's an important sort of psychological construct that they operate with, uh, being, you know, if nothing else, we aren't as as ghoulish and violent as conservative folks are, and when in reality, you know, you know the, the drone prog- program under Barack Obama was horrible. It killed thousands upon thousands of people. I think it was something like 26,000 bombs dropped in his last year alone Jesus across God. the Middle East and Africa. You know, that's that's horrific. No matter what color tie the person ordering bombs to be dropped is wearing, yeah. that sense of moral superiority, at least on an individual level for individual liberals, is a really important part of who they are. I pick up that a little bit when I talk to people in real life, is this idea that, when when I come at them with a, a more left wing critique, like I'm taking something from them, and that <laughs> <laughs> I have to I have to be careful about that because it's it's a personal attack on on who they are, who they imagine themselves to be, anyway.
1: That's where the that's where the term alt left came from. You know, liberals yeah. liberals had to create this notion that that they're the real left, and so we have to be the alternative left. And, be, and precisely for that reason, because they view themselves as the most progressive. They view themselves as the left. And so when you have people in black bloc knocking Nazis out in the street or challenging them from a, from a left-wing perspective, instead of being honest about that and, and trying to really self-criticize their own sort of complacency as a maintainer of the status quo, they just discard us all as as alt-left and then slander us with liberal identity politics like Bernie Bros. People forget that when Hillary Clinton ran against Obama the first time, she did that same thing. She called Obama supporters Obama boys, you know? And then and when Bernie came on, she calls Bernie Bros. And this is this attempt to sort of to not only claim their moral superiority, but to, to trash the entire left as sexist or misogynist, etc. Because if they were actually to in, engage with left-wing analysis, they would quickly realize that the best, most robust analysis of feminism or racism or settler colonialism is on the left. That, that, the, that the principled left is superior morally to the center liberals, and, and they just can't accept that, and they, they won't accept it.
0: Well, it's also this, um, this thing also about stressing style over substance is it, it leads to a lot of um, miscommunications where something is said that makes me angry or makes like, you know, it would make another socialist probably very angry. Um, but because it's said in a polite and respectful way, the person you're talking to is like completely bewildered by it. So like one thing I've noticed is that liberals are quite content to uh, like progressive liberals are quite content to respectfully debate whether you know what was done to Indigenous people in the Americas constitutes genocide. They're they're happy to have respectful conversations uh, with genocide deniers on the right if they're respectful, and if you know someone like me comes in and said like is angry, is like why why the hell is this going on? Why why are you even entertaining this? This is ridiculous. They look at me like I, or they'll turn to me as if I'm the person who's bringing aggression into the conversation. Right. Well, no, the person who's trying to deny genocide is the one who brought aggression into the conversation they're the one who made it an uncivil conversation yep me telling that person to fuck off is not i'm not the one who started the incivility here you know
1: absolutely yeah great point totally agree
2: okay has anybody got any closing thoughts or remarks me alamo brett on uh independent left-wing media or anything else we've talked about here today
1: yeah i mean i would i would just kind of close it out by saying we need more of it. Um, You know, not everybody is suited to be um, a podcaster necessarily, but everybody on the left has talents. You know, you you might be really good at at making music or, you know, you might be good at this or that thing. You might, you know, you might be advancing in your field, in academia, et cetera, but we all – occupy space as social spaces. We all have an influence inside of our social circles. And and the best thing that leftists can do, especially at this time is to try to see how they can maneuver in whatever spaces they exist in to push things leftward, to to inject left-wing analyses and perspectives on these global issues, and to keep moving the ball forward for the left. And everybody can do it. And so I just encourage everybody to take that responsibility into your own lives and do as, as much as you can because it does matter. Even talking to your parents and, and, and reframing debates from a left wing perspective, it does matter. So just do the best you can. And we're all in this together. And yeah, that's, that's how I'd close it. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that. That was great. I just want to thank Brett for coming on.
2: Yeah, yeah. for sure. We we really appreciate you coming on. Good luck recording everything tonight.
1: Absolutely. Thank you both so much for having me on. It's been a fascinating conversation. Let's keep in touch and maybe we can collaborate in the future.
2: Hell yeah. All right. I'll see you next time. Okay, uh, we really want to thank Brett for coming on the episode. It was a great conversation. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Songdogs Podcast. We have a link to our blog, Songdog Letters, uh, there, and we will be putting our uh, Patreon link in the episode description. So if you got a couple extra bucks, feel free to kick them to us, uh, and we'll see y'all next time.